there is there is that but when i click on it it doesn't do anything when i click on it a little a box comes up that's got the google chrome icon telling me like an arrow to go into applications yeah just drag 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 the icon into the applications folder Seamus, i've got an idea i'm going to drag it into applications <laughs> It's not the Starship Enterprise. Just, just, see if that, just see if that works. I'm really sad that this doesn't, like this only records audio. Um, okay. All right. Join the session. Okay, here we go. This is Owen Calfer in Dublin. This is Andrew Duncan in London. And you're listening to Double Booked. Double Booked is a podcast for people who like children's books, graphic novels, comics, books, libraries, librarians, bookshops, secondhand bookshops, and secondhand librarians. And Andrew, why, why do you feel we are qualified uh, to talk about books, librarians, secondhand books, first-hand books, comics, graphic novels, and all those other things you mentioned? Well, you First are. First of all, because... tell me how great I am. And then well, actually... okay, you are Owen Colfer, and you are the best-selling um, author of the Artemis Fowl series of books, The Fowl Twins, um, and many, many other award-winning books, including graphic novels of those things, and including graphic novels like Illegal. And um, we've been working together for 20 years on various different lovely book projects. It's funny uh, that we, I think I would have to say that the, the highlight of my career is, and I suspect perhaps yours, I don't want to jump in, uh, was working on Illegal, which is the graphic novel sure. uh, we, we wrote together how, two and a half years ago. And yep. it is still winning awards all around the world. I don't know how that has happened. I don't know how it's legal to do that two and a half years after you've had a book published. But your history, of course, is you've been writing books and comic books uh, for, for 20 plus years. Uh, biographies, graphic novels, comic editions, Batman, for example, uh, and we met uh, because we share an agent and uh, we became friends. We bonded over a love of graphic novels and genre fiction. And eventually we went on to write our own genre fiction. So here we are, tens of millions of copies sold later. And we feel slightly qualified uh, to talk about our industry. And that's what that's what we're here for. Yeah. And it'll be a wide or wide ranging conversation of anything we fancy. And things from the UK publishing um, industry, things from the Irish industry. So we'll be quite quite diverse and coming at you from two different countries. Yes, I th we, weren't we going to pretend we were together in a studio? <laughs> I think it, I think it's good to stretch ourselves across the entire British Isles and, and, and beyond. Um, shall I tell you what's coming up today? Yes, please, please. Okay. So this is this is uh, we've got our our first feature. Um, every podcast is going to be me, my shelf, and I, which is a brilliant title, and we can take nice. no credit for that because our producer Seamus came up with that. Me, my shelf, and I, and somebody, and this podcast is going to be you. Is going to talk about a book that they absolutely loved and they read growing up, and either kind of changed their life or inspired them to be a writer, inspired their love of storytelling. Um, and we're going to you're you're going to have that choice of book this um this week. Then we're going to have a little bit of mad science. Then normally we're going to have somebody, we're having a special guest, a top author, uh, come in and and basically plug their new book that's out, and we're going to quiz them to see if you and I can get any tips to make our books better. And also, and also not pay them any money. And obviously whatsoever. not not pay them any uh, any appearance <laughs> money for sure. Um, and then we've got a little feature called "It Was Rubbish, But I Loved It," 
which yeah. I'm choosing this podcast. Um, that's my that's my whole career. <laughs> something from your youth that you that you loved, and when you look at when you look back on enjoying it, it's maybe not quite as good as you remember, but you still love it. You still love it. Yeah. And then the last feature um today is is going to be Agony Owen, and we put a call out across your yeah. multi social media platforms. accounts. The platforms, darling. Yeah. Platforms, as people say, are followed by billions of people across not just the earth, but the whole universe. And they have written in with their um, questions on writing and books and things like that. And you're going to kind of act as an agony Owen. Well, hopefully I can I can undermine them so they never embark on a career of writing and we get to keep all those uh, lovely sales that we have. Well, if we can put as many potentially very good writers off as possible, I think yes. then we've done yes, ourselves that, a service, if nothing else. Yes. So done. I think that's, I yeah. know, oh, I think that's really our, 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 our aim. Um, so with that in mind, would you like to reveal uh, the book that you have picked for this podcast, Me, Myself and I, a book that had a lot of meaning to you and that you go back to and, and still does? What have you chosen? Hmm, I wonder what they've picked this time. It's Me, Myself and I. Uh, I have chosen Treasure Island, the wonderful Treasure Island uh, by uh, R.L. Stevenson. And um, I think I like this book so much because uh, I'm always looking for that uh, door into a book, that just a moment where I could connect with that book and and agree to go on the journey. Uh, and around the time I was reading Treasure Island, uh, there were a lot of square-jawed heroes involved, and I really couldn't relate to them. But when I started to read Treasure Island, Jim Hawkins, um, it seemed like a guy that I could possibly hang out with. And if I was allowed to go on the Hispaniola, that me and Jim would be mates. Um, Also, it's fantastically well-written, obviously. Every character in it is almost a household name now. Um, It has one of the scariest scenes, I think, that I've ever read that can stand up there with anything by Poe or Stephen King. And and that is when Jim is hiding in the ditch at the side of the road and the blind pirate is tap, tap, tapping his way uh, down the road. And, and, uh, and Jim is just terrified lying there that he's got the stick is going to hit him on the head and he's, he's going to be found. And another one when he's hiding in the apple barrel um, below decks on Hispaniola and the pirates are discussing the mutiny and he knows if they catch him, they will kill him. So it's just a fantastic adventure story. And it's kind of a, the gold standard for adventure stories still. So if you want to get into this business of writing uh, an adventure story and you want to know what you're up against, per se, you just have to go and read uh, Treasure Island. And I like it uh, in that it doesn't really sugarcoat stuff for kids. Like, they, they are in real peril. And Jim has to kill someone at one point. For the for the benefit of any of our listeners uh, with the terrible affliction of youth, what what summarize the book in a paragraph? Summarize the the, the opening. What's the book about? Ha ha, me hardly. Well, uh, me a clue there. young 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 Jim Hawkins lives with his mum and dad in an inn uh, in the south of England somewhere, and uh, they are they take in this uh, kind of old pirate, and uh, he's staying there. He pays them, and he's he's terrified that there's something going on, that there's people coming for him. Um, so uh, they do, these pirates do turn up and he is served with a, uh, a black spot, which means he is going to die. And he has in his possession the trunk of uh, Captain Flint, who is uh, worse than Blackbeard, as they say. 
and it's rumored that he has buried um, vast treasure on a mysterious island. Um, and through one uh, device or another, Jim comes into possession of the treasure map. Uh, he goes to the local royalty and says, let's go, let's find this treasure. They do, but they they have trouble getting a crew. So eventually they, um, they manage to uh, take on board all the pirates that used to be on Flint's uh, crew as their own crew. And of course, uh, mutiny ensues and uh, much double dealing and backstabbing and uh, digging for treasure and skulls and crossbones and until eventually they end up uh, back in Blighty with the treasure in tow. So would it, would it be true to say it's, it's kind of the original source material for the good pirates of the Caribbean's films? It's, it's that kind of very colorful over the top pirates posing danger yeah. and it has terror, danger, adventure in, in equal measures all the way through it. Oh, absolutely. It's the archetype for all of those books, stories, movies, uh, and I think they definitely took their inspiration uh, from Treasure Island. And I think the Johnny Depp character, Jack Sparrow, is definitely a descendant of, uh, he's kind of a mixture. He's like a cheeky, him. chappy version, is he? He's a cheeky, chappy version of Long yeah. John Silver. With all of his, Long with John all Silver, limbs. yeah, slash Captain Hook, you yeah. know, so um, brilliant. If you haven't read that, and I think most people, you've probably read it a dozen times, I'm sure, but if you haven't read it, uh, you really your education in that area is not complete, and you should go off and read it immediately. And unlike some of the stuff that you know we loved it then, but it's a bit naff now. This just completely stands up. And when you read it as a as a writer who's been writing books for thirty five years, uh, you realize just how good it is because there's not a, a word out of place. And uh, this the, the plot is quite complex. It doesn't patronize the readers. It's quite violent in places, uh, which might not get past the censors now. Um, so, yeah, it's a brilliant read. And uh, the old black and white movie. What age did you read it at? How old were you? Reading? Well, I was I was two. I was very, very smart. And, no, I was. I think I was about nine, nine or ten. And I, I remember reading it at night and uh, in bed. And very sadly, I had one of those little plastic um, petrol station torches Um and reading the section where Jim is being hunted by the blind pirate. And that is, and that's maybe that's why it stuck with me so much that it's such a terrifying piece. So, um, some of the finest writing at, at, in adventure books before or since. I think Treasure Island is a, is a fantastic title. Do, do you know, pop quiz for you, do you know the original title of the book? I only know this because I looked it up today because I knew that we were going to be talking about it. And I know you know this book a lot better than I do. Do you know the original title for the book? Um, I do not. I was go- I was trying to make up something funny uh, after. It's, after it, it's, there, its original title was the Sea Cook. The Sea Cook. The sea cook. I suppose. Well, I suppose uh, John Silver uh, is he is the cook at sea, but it's not Treasure Island's a better title. Tre- Treasure Island. The Sea Cook would now be a Channel Four cookery program based on fish and things, wouldn't it? Six parts. Yeah, I think. It, I think they, that's what it would be now. And I think that the joy of the TV show, The Sea Cook, would they would go deliberately into rough seas and then the cook would have to try and still make the flan or the souffle rise that would, in force 10 gales. It would be a meal. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, it would be a meal in rough seas, six diamonds, and you have to keep the food down. That would be that, uh, that would be the gimmick. Absolutely. I think I think it could work. And I, uh, I think Simon Cowell 
would be a good judge there. Louis Walsh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't think he likes fish, so he could be at. Um, but yeah, see Cook. Let's 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 submit that to the BBC. All right. See what happens. Okay, it's got cha- <laughs> it's got BBC written all over it. Um, that's great. So that's your that's your book, Treasure Island. You heartily, no pun intended, recommend it. Yeah, I I absolutely do. Can I can I, I do my it... crappy pirate joke, which uh, Fisher's primary school teacher is his favourite joke? Well, can I, I have it? to I have to I have to write uh, this first, so I give it five stars. Oh, nice. Okay. That's, that's, why are pirates? Why are pirates called pirates? I don't know because they are. <laughs> well, no, I knew you'd love it. I knew you'd love it. Thank you for sharing your yeah. memories of um, of reading Treasure yeah, Island. It, it's fantastic. Yeah. I remember reading it as a, a later than you because obviously I wasn't quite so precocious when I was about twelve. Um, and it is a thrilling read. Yeah, it is a thrilling read, and uh, I highly recommend it to, to everybody. But it's not for the faint of heart. It is, it is scary, and it, so if you like a good scare, this is the book for you. Shall we move along? Shall we move along? Yeah, let's next? move along to this, our, our mad science clip of the podcast. Uh, this is it just because I love it and I think it's, it's crazy. Um, and I was reminded about the kind, of, the, the kind of mad science that Artemis gets up to in a couple of books because he's a bit of a mad inventor. Yeah. Hello, you're true to the weird science department. Have you tried turning it on and off again? This is, this is um, Weather Watch from The Guardian from a couple of months ago. And I'll just read it to you. This is great. Imagine this happening. Imagine this happening next door to you. Mysterious booms shaking the small town of Hamilton in New Jersey in December were traced to a backyard attempt at cloud busting. Now, cloud busting is when you have a kind of a cannony thing and you point it up at the uh, clouds and you either try and make rain or stop rain. Rob Bukowski, a construction worker, built a metal device resembling a giant horn to fire donut-shaped shock waves into the sky, aiming to prevent hail from damaging his vines. The device mixes various gases and oxygen and detonates them in an ear-splitting explosion, which the five-meter horn directs upwards. Technically, the device is legal if operated before 10 p.m. After that, it would constitute... No, before 10 p.m. 5 to 10, you're absolutely fine. Um, After that, it would constitute a noise nuisance. Bukowski believes it is highly effective. He says, quote, you should see it split split, split clouds apart, he told his local newspaper. You can hear it rip. Uh, Bogowski says that this device is also a bird scarer for which there is better scientific evidence. And, and I saw this in action and it, and it projects a, a donut about four foot wide of pure sound energy up into the clouds. And it makes a sound like about 10 cannons going off. And how did, can you see the sound energy? Yeah, it's visible, visible because you see it as kind of, I don't know, I guess a sort of cushion of really compressed air going up towards the clouds and it does, it does split them apart. I have, I have seen this on the YouTube. Um, so that's, that's, I would like one of those for Christmas if you're asking me what I would like. It does seem like there was a simpler way to avoid getting your vines wet, like maybe some plastic tunneling, something like that might be a little bit more cost effective. But uh, Clyde, I, for like Kate Bush will be forever my Cloudbuster, so I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stick with Kate. But it does sound very like the machine she had in that video with Donald yes. Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up on YouTube. Uh, and you're right, Artemis is uh, has always been a bit of a a mad genius and he, putting together all these crackpot inventions. Um, but that that was very enjoyable for me doing that kind of research and. And this Cloudbuster guy is exactly the kind of person that Artemis would like to meet up with and, and have a discussion. I, I wouldn't like to be his neighbors, though. 
I mean, if you're trying to get some water down on your tomatoes and he's busting all the clouds uh, and also making a lot of noise uh, doing it, it would seem uh, that could be a nuisance in, in many nobody, ways. You, but um, I'll see what it, for miles around, miles and miles. Nobody knew what it was at first. And he's now got a kind of Claxton system that when he's going to use it to alert his neighbours, he will, he will let off the Claxton. But the Claxton is almost as loud <laughs> as the thing that it's warning that he's about to use. So now his neighbours have got an enormous Claxton going off, followed by a huge boom, <laughs> rather than just a huge boom. So I don't know if that's a win or what. I love... Uh, yeah, I love if if you had a visitor and like, what's that noise? Well, it's not going to get any better. <laughs> we have to get that guy on. He can be our our, our first guest. Um, I I can't believe. I wonder could you kill somebody with that? I mean, if you got shot with um, a donut of compressed noise sound, would that would that? Kill I, w- you? I would think it would. I mean, although I, I have would been think it I definitely wouldn't do you any good. Well, I, I've been at an ACDC concert, and you know that shook me. All night long, as they say, but it didn't kill me. But I reckon compressed, compressed donuts, donuts of, of raw <laughs> sound energy um, would maybe do the trick. Oh, but, oh, that's fantastic. I, I really like this. I think this is my favorite section, even though it has nothing to do with books. Um, it's really great. So uh, what is our what is item number three? Well, item number three is, is normally going to be our guest slot. Welcome to the part of the show. We invite writers to... We really love them, and we know you love them too. Um, and our first guest yeah. next podcast is going to be Mr. Jonathan Stroud. Um, oh, Jonathan's come along. Yeah, um, and that's great. Now, we, we're going to have to, because he's, as my mother would say, he's well-spoken, which is my mum's way of saying posh. So we're going to have to clean up the virtual studio a bit, and we're going to have to put out some caviar sandwiches, and we're going to have to really polish the place up a little well, bit. Well, we can... Okay. He should have the latest gossip on uh, Harry and Meghan, so we can ask him about that and you know anything else he might have found out. And then the guest after that is going to be um, uh, Jenny Valentine. Jenny, oh, she's a fantastic. She's a, but the problem with the problem with Jenny is she's an actual writer, so he might be put under. Well, we could we could get some tips. To, uh, That's what I'm hoping for. We could get some tips. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, no, Jenny's great, and her new series uh, is is great. Uh, the first book is just out, so it'll be nice to talk about that. I'm glad you're telling well, me all it's this. Good, isn't it? it's, all good, it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. <laughs> I, I suppose you've learned through uh, experience that it's not good to give me information beforehand. <laughs> just forget about it, twist it, lose it. I'm better be just well, told on the spot. Exactly. There you go. But two fab guests coming up to talk about writing, to talk about children's That's books, and, and generally hang out with us. Yeah. So that'll be nice, I think. Excellent. Our next segment is called It Was Rubbish, uh, But I Loved It. And that is when we look back to something we really loved as younger people. And it doesn't in some ways survive the test of time. Maybe it's a bit cheesy. Maybe it's a bit naff, but it doesn't matter because we loved it when we were young. We still love it today. And uh, this week, Andrew, you are going to tell us all about something that was maybe a little bit rubbish, but you loved it. It was rubbish, but I loved it. The thing I loved um, growing up was a, a TV series called The Tomorrow People. Um, it was, oh, it was yeah. uh, remade a little bit in the late 90s, but I'm talking about the original 1970s one uh, that started off with John, Carol Kenny, um, and Stephen, and it was about some, some teenagers, and they were going through something called Breaking Out, and they were the next development of human evolution called Homo, Homo Superior, 
whereas normal people were homo sapiens um, and they became homo superior. That meant they could jaunt, which was disappear with a little bit yeah. of a quite poor shimmering effect. And they could reappear anywhere else yeah. in the world, which I just thought would be a really cool superpower as a kid. And they could talk to each other telepathically and they'd, they'd be going, Owen, 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 are you there? Like that. And they would disturb each other in, in, in odd ways. Um, and telekinesis, they could float yeah. things around, although they didn't use that very much. And they had one of the best bases in, in genre. Um, I'm going to ask you, what, what are your top three bases in genre? If you could be anywhere, what, what are your top three bases in genre? Secret head do you reckon wow. i think my three would be well, Jordan, you, want, you want to have a crack i would say uh, number one would be jupiter jones and the three oh. investigators who had built their they built their hideout inside nice. a dump so uh, a junkyard which looked like a pile of junk but then inside there was uh, jupiter pete crenshaw and the other guy who yep. i can't remember uh rick, rick something I, the bat cave, the bat you would, cave have to say, would be uh, would be number two and then uh, I'm trying to remember another secret layer. Oh, any of the Bond layers. I loved all the Bond books. So I think uh, Dr. Noe's layer in the first Bond book uh, would, was... Uh, Dr. Noe's is good. Because if you had the crater one, imagine having the crater one, and then you went out for some milk and a newspaper, and you came back, and it takes like 45 minutes to move the lake across the top of the crater. You just get a kajaki, <laughs> yeah. open the door. That's going to get really wearing after a while. So I... I well, I think i just give, give up, up milk. Give up milk I instead. Milk just go vegan. Go. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe bond maybe most bond villains were vegan because of the effort of sending out for milk <laughs> yeah, i can't be bothered i just cannot vegan. be bothered just yeah. give me the mint tea vegan i can't vegan. be bothered absolutely that was probably that's, that's probably his secret <laughs> name so what's your code name vegan finger <laughs> my top three headquarters were going to be the tardis because that's a headquarter that can move anywhere and the Batcave is number two. And yeah, for me, absolutely. it was the Tomorrow People's headquarters, the number three, because they had a headquarters that was in a disused, abandoned underground station. So straight away, so I grew up in on the outskirts of London. Uh, my nearest tube station was Gants Hill. And so the idea of being able to have a base in a spooky old deserted tube station was fantastic. And they had an intergalactic oh, yeah. supercomputer called Tim, who kind of had all floaty bits. He was he was sort of in the ceiling and he had all those kind of lights that you would get in lava lava lamps. And the four kids would have lots yeah. of adventures and then there would be Tim. And Tim was um, rather uh, 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 rather kind of posh, know-it-all uh, supercomputer who would say things like, but John, if you jaunt to Watford, that's beyond the travel card area. You'll need an extra fare for that <laughs> to get back. And if they were going to jaw and it was raining, he'd go, but John, if you don't take an overcoat, you might find yourself getting a thorough soaking. He was very supercilious, a word that for grown-ups here nice. means a little bit too on point. like a butler. Yeah, I, I, I love, I remember that. Some of my favourite things about the Tomorrow People was, first of all, the theme song was magnificent. Uh, the theme, theme tune is brilliant. Had, and it was uh, written by Dudley thinking. Simpson, who did loads and loads of work on Doctor Who, not the main Doctor Who theme, but he did loads of genre science fiction yeah. at the time. Special effects, I, I remember the jaunting. It, it looked like someone was reflecting a candle off some tinfoil and just holding it close to the, the actor. It was, But that had a huge effect on me, that and the original plan. That the, I, I shouldn't say what else because we'd probably use them, but there's so many of those things where they didn't have the money and they just had to make up for it in ingenuity and, and they didn't have technology, so they just did whatever they had to do. And uh, even though you knew 
it, it looked a bit naff. It's still, you appreciated the effort they had put in. Absolutely. And there's a little bit of a Tomorrow People connection with one of your favourites, David Bowie. Oh, yeah? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Roger Price, um, who produced the Tomorrow People, he was an ITV producer and he bumped into Bowie at a music, recording a music programme on, on ITV um, when he was writing the scripts of the Tomorrow People and they got chatting and David Bowie said to him, like, oh, what yeah. are you writing? And he told him the story of the Tomorrow People and that they were homo superior. That was his little kind of phrase for it. Not, yeah, 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 no. absolutely. And Bowie said, oh, I love that. I'm going to put that in a song. And he put it in All You Pretty Things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, and that's yeah. where that—that's where that line oh, comes from, from the tomorrow people. Because when you said it immediately, uh, I just started humming. Uh, Got to make way for yeah. the homo superior, and I just—and that's and there the is a connection. So it was when Price was developing the scripts. So the so, I think "Oh, You Pretty Things" came out first, but Price had been working on the scripts of the series for, for several years before it came out. Um, so yeah, so there's a there's a David Bowie inspiration there, and the tomorrow people. You're speaking about the dodgy wow. effects. I looked it up today as we were, going to, we were going to talk about it, and, and it was made, the budget of the Tomorrow People, now this was the 70s, so okay, you've got to allow for inflation and everything else, but yeah. the budget for the Tomorrow People was £5,000 an episode. £5,000, you know, which which today would buy you, I don't know what would buy you, 30 seconds worth of CGI. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't probably buy you 30 seconds. So it was made for £5,000 an episode. Wow, that is that's that is unbelievable, and they, and they did a reasonable job. But I, I think the strength was the scripts were good, if I remember. Uh, they were twee, but they they stand up. You know, they're as good as the Doctor Who's. I think uh, I, I really the first, the first three series are especially strong, and the the favourite story uh, that people tend to remember is called the Blue and the Green, which was about a weird alien painting that divided humanity. You were either in Team Blue or Team Green, and people had badges, and it set people against each other. And that was a kind of really strong science fiction idea. And that I think was the best moment of the of the series and people kind of have a strong memory people sorry remember that story really well i think of the possibly dozen people who will have will listen to this podcast at least four will remember uh, the tomorrow people and it, i we we have set up an email um so if you have any things that you can suggest uh we'll give you the details for that later and i say that because i can't remember what they are now um the so, details are it's double booked podcast at aol.com exactly and again more proof why you don't give me any information beforehand because i just forget it so our we're going our next time changing into my role as an agony uncle for our, our final section today um and you're going to ask me some questions, and hopefully you can help me answer some questions that have been sent in um, by readers and hopefully future fans we, of this podcast. And uh, there are mostly a lot of writers' questions, which which yeah, yeah, absolutely. We put the we put the call out on um, uh, on on your social media accounts, and we got some questions. Thank you for your question. Agony Owen will be with you shortly. Okay, hit me. Okay, so we're gonna ask you some questions and these have been flooding in from social media accounts people who want uh your expertise on on their writing this first question is from chaska who is aged 13 um and they say i'm starting out a fantasy novel and i have the plot down but i'm having a bit of trouble with my characters can you help me make them more dynamic um i think with characters it's very important that you have a picture in your own mind of what the character is and that you try and avoid the character cliches uh, that have come through in the fantasy world. And what would help you with that, what helps me is to 
base the character on someone so that other if you if you base it on someone you can ask yourself what would that someone say in this situation because otherwise what tends to happen and i don't know if you agree with this andrew but uh that all the characters slowly morph into you so it's 12 versions of you maybe different parts of your personality and that can get boring for you and it can get boring for the reader so i try and base it on a family member seamus and andrew have both been in my books uh that's seamus the producer and andrew who i'm talking to obviously so everybody i know has been in my books at some point or other they don't know who they are what characters they are um Obviously, the Andrew character is amazingly handsome, dynamic, Actually, and I'd successful say. in all areas of his life. But would you agree with that, Andrew, that it's best to have something Absolutely. in mind for your character to, to stop them becoming kind of... Uh, yeah, abs- absolutely. You you have to think of them as something completely separate to you and hopefully have their individual speech patterns and always remember what their motivation is, uh, whether they're a main character or yeah. not character. They want something, as we all do, from the world. So what do yeah. they constantly want? It won't, be the same as, it won't be the same as you. It won't be the same as me. It will be something else. So using people in stories brings us neatly to um, Neva's question, which is, hi, Owen. Firstly, I'd like to say I've been in love with the AF books since I was a kid, and it inspired me to visit Ireland three times. My question... I think we could stop there. Don't I don't think we That's need just a, a love letter. This is a love <laughs> letter. Just... <laughs> My question is, how do you include personal experiences in writing and be vulnerable to your readers without the backlash from people in your personal life? It's hard, to be honest, knowing a call oh, yeah. from an angry auntie is on the way that is very true and a few times i've actually taken stuff out when it occurs to me that my mom might read it or one of my brothers might read it but um i do try and take personal experiences but i would switch a little switch it around a bit so if somebody fell off a wall i would have them falling off oh, a that, gate. Was, I that, that would never suspect so, that would that would fool anybody no that's it, genius. but that's that is the thing people don't suspect People really don't. And if you say to, I've said to people, you are in this book. Who do you think you are? They never say, see themselves. So you can take something that happened to one character and give it to a different character and just swap everything around. You just jumble it up. But you'd be surprised that people don't recognize themselves unless it's, you know, something very obvious, like somebody with an eye patch, uh, you know, and uh, who wears a fur coat all the time. And there, you do have someone in your life with an eye patch who wears a fur coat all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I take personal experiences, but I give them to... So if it happened to an old woman, I would give it to a young man, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, and amazingly, that seems that's worked for me so, so far. I mean, I've gotten in trouble a few times, but, but generally it's pretty okay. And, uh, and the books I write aren't very realistic anyway, so people tend not to get upset. They're not really... They're charming. They're, they are very charming. Exposed. And even though you are cheeky sometimes with people and you take the mickey, you do it in a very charming yeah. and loving way. Well, it, the, I try to, t- if I'm, uh, you know, taking the mickey out of somebody, I try to do it in a way that makes them ultimately look good. You know, they're actually, uh, what, whatever I do to people, I don't really, I don't want them to feel bad about it. So I wouldn't like to demean somebody in the pages of an Artemis file book. But you need, you do need to be careful and you need to be responsible and you need to remember uh these are people you have to meet every day having said that many writers would say do what you got to do for literature you know and you have to take the consequences of that 
is that is that the divorced writers whose children have disowned them? Is it is it those writers you're talking about? That is, there is, yeah, they all meet together in the Lonely Man's Club every Wednesday. Uh, but we don't want to be in that club, so we uh, try not to upset anybody. But but there is an argument for that in the name of literature, you know, write what you got to write. So you have to make that all decision. All right, our yourself. next question um, is quite a, 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 is a grown-up adult industry question. It comes from Nikki Fox, and she says, Hi, Owen. I finished my novel, and I'm experiencing the agony of not hearing back from agents, uh, not even to tell me how terrible yeah. and ridiculous it might be, struggling to resist the temptation to jump back in and rewrite. Uh, and then she asks, How did you deal yeah. with rejection in the early days, and did you revisit rejected manuscripts? Thank you. Um I dealt with it pretty badly, I have to say, and I'd love to say I didn't have to deal with it, but I did. Uh, the first book I wrote, I think I was 19 or 20, and I was convinced it was a masterpiece when, in fact, it was a very thinly veiled version of Tarzan. So, uh, But I thought no one would know because uh, my hero uh, did not grow up in the jungle. He grew up in the forest, which is completely different, and he was not raised by gorillas he was raised by wolves so it was absolutely nothing did like you do, did you i think did you do that as a thing i wrote i wrote a version of i, yeah. I thought i would get away with where a boy on a school trip so like a you know an eight-year-old or something uh he's a he gets lost he gets separated from school on a school trip and he's adopted by a colony of ants and he never really quite fits in uh, you know, he has his own huge cavern <laughs> in the nest and he steps on other members of his family and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why, but that was rejected as being unrealistic. But that sounds, I think that's that sounds a good. good. Idea, isn't it? Did you just make that up? Just a good idea. But mine, uh, mine wasn't well executed either. So, and I remember I was so confident I drew the cover myself. Oh, and I, as you know, you drew the cover yourself. <laughs> and this is how old? How old? Are, how old are we at this point? I was about nineteen, That's maybe not twenty, maybe. Yeah, it's a bold, and I was like sitting back waiting for the limousine to arrive and the publisher to run out and beg me to sign up. And and in those days, you had to print out, you had to print out the manuscript, and it was quite expensive. So. I remember sending it out to about two publishers at a time. And I got the addresses from publishers by going to the local bookstore and opening the books and writing down the publisher's addresses. So there was no real, you didn't have any way to find out. So uh, so when the rejection started to come in, I, the first one that came in, I, I couldn't believe it. And then after about 10, you just get this familiar leaden feeling in your stomach. Uh, and I actually stopped writing books for about two years because I was so depressed um, after that. And, but look, thankfully, I got over myself, uh, and it would have. Been, and I was so glad that it hadn't been published when I look back upon it because I hadn't really found my voice. So most writers get rejected quite a lot, and most writers don't get their first effort published. Um, so you just got do you to think that Nikki up. should be patient rather than going into rewriting? That's what I would say. She needs to be patient for a while and see. Sometimes yeah. it takes agents a long Absolutely. time to go through their slush pile and to get back, especially if it's unsolicited stuff. So before jumping into any emergency yeah. rewrites, um, give that draft a fair crack of the whip would be my advice. Yeah, I, because you, you're you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing rewrites, uh, just looking for something to rewrite, it's it's not an instinctive thing. I would say wait, and I would say keep submitting. There's plenty. And I would say get a hold of the Writers and Artists Yearbook. That is a brilliant 
uh, yearly publication that really goes through the uh, the business of being published and submissions and what people want. So you'd be amazed how many writers send, uh, you know, fantasy books to publishers of mathematics manuals. They just pick publishers out of the the phone book. So you, you need to send to the right place, and and there will be the, a right person for your book. You just gotta get it into their hands. So definitely wait, Nikki, and give it another six months and, and just keep submitting. All cool. All right, we've got two more questions. So the the penultimate question is from. Um, uh... Uh, Hannah at Blue Egg Adventures and she says how much research is enough I'm creating a 1940s alternate future and will be needing to research World War II ships and such but I'm also researching personality types to help me create well-rounded characters can you reach a point where you've got too much research I think you can and it's very obvious sometimes when you're reading novels that the author is not really telling a story. He's kind of bragging about all the research he's done. So you want to layer it in subtly and uh, you have to present it as a reality. And in reality, you're not talking about the history of every building you pass. So you just need to present this as this is my reality. And this is the way I talk about this. uh, And not this is 10 pages of research. Um, So I've done quite a few historical novels uh, and I just try and go light. I do a lot of research, so I really, really know what I'm talking about. But then I try not to include it, just to just to let it come through in how I'm writing and uh, layer it in gradually. Good, so I would do all the research, but don't a include good tip all the I find good tactic to make sure that you're not putting too much research into the draft when you get going with the narrative is to do all of your research on a completely different subject. It's got no relevance at all. And then and then, right. and then that's okay. it. Then you I'm... won't include any of it. Okay. I hope that's good. Okay. Sh- Seamus, can, can we cut that, Seamus? Can we cut that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope Nikki feels better now. But, you know, I doubt it. But we're doing our best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, first I think Agony Owen's Agony going very well. Andrew, I actually have a letter here, um, handwritten beautifully, um, with a question for you. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's have it. So it's quite a long letter. So um, if you would mind... Not interrupting as you usually do. That would be great. Of course. Dear Andy, a bit familiar, I think, but never mind. Uh, You have written many best-selling books over the years and done quite well for yourself, um, considering everything stacked against you. Like your looks. Wow, that's very personal. I'm writing to ask you, what is it like working with an internationally handsome, oh, Super author like Owen Coffer. Oh, this, I like this person. I bet he is always funny and fantastic right from early morning to the end of the day. This is every day. This person, it's like he sees me. He knows me. I imagine he's never grumpy, always good looking and charismatic. It must be like working with a kind of literary George Clooney, only more attractive and with better hair. Is it true that when... Where am where, where has this letter come from? Is this is this from the post Instagramy Twitter? Where is this it's, come um, from? It's fr- it's from as I like to call them, posty posty. Uh, actually, I wasn't here. Uh, it just was on my desk. So I'm presuming uh, posty. And it's handwritten. Beautifully, beautifully handwritten. It's like uh, can, a wedding invitation. The whole thing. Can it's I amazing. ask you? Is it is it in your handwriting? Um. Well, I think it would possibly take a forensic expert, handwriting expert. It does. Um, it does. I think. Similar. I think. I think you wrote that letter, and I think this is the end of the letter section. 
if you have any real letters, any real questions that you would like answered about writing, please send them in um, by email. We have an email at doublebookpodcast at aol.com. Please let us have real letters, not handwritten letters from Owen. I think you should apologize for that. That's very embarrassing indeed. I would like to apologize to our listener <laughs> for that shameless self-promotion. And, and the, and the other one. Alpha. And our and the other, other listener, listener as well. Mom, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it won't happen again. Genuine letters only from now on. Uh, now we are, I know you said we had two listeners, but we probably lost one. My mum switched letter, off at eight. So it's just, yeah. it's just Nikki. My mum would have gone off at eight, so <laughs> just down to your mum now. That is, she will be listening to it if the chase is not on. If the chase is on, the chase always, the chase chaser always wins. So it, she will not be listening to our. That's fair enough. So it's just for me to say, uh, this is Andrew Nocking in London saying thank you for listening. And this is Owen Calfer in Dublin signing off. Until next time on Double Booked. Double Book was produced by Owen Colfer and Andrew Duncan and Seamus Redmond. Sound editing by Seamus Redmond. Theme tune by Liam Bates. This has been a Silver Foxes production. No Silver Foxes were harmed in the making of this podcast.